0: I think I would say that my work has evolved quite a bit, and a lot of that is the recognition of Mm -hmm. well-being practices, to be Uh honest, you know? And um, yeah, so I was, as I've mentioned many times, like a frontline responder for most of my journey. Um, So when there were crises in community to think about, well, what is a campaign? What is a response? What is the Uh policy, right? How do we bring people together to talk about it? Um, and I spent a lot, most of my time doing that. And I think I recognized, um, uh, around, uh, probably like at the 10, eight to 10 year mark, the eight year mark of doing that, that I was, um, kind of numb, you know, I mm-hmm. wasn't like responding with the same level of energy or the same level of, I think, um, rigor, um, mm-hmm. or ideas that I had before. And it was because I was feeling exhausted
1: and fatigued. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Mamtha Akapati. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Leadership. Go to leadership.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. Today's episode is also sponsored by Simplicity, a true partner. Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. Stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about each sponsor. As I mentioned, my name is Mumpa Akapati. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am broadcasting today from Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas is situated on the unceded ancestral homelands of the Humanos, Guahuiltecan, Comanche, Lipan Apache and Tonkawa peoples. I'm really excited uh, for this conversation today. I am joined today by globally recognized activist and scholar, Deepa Ayer. Deepa is a weaver, a frontline responder, a storyteller and a guide. Through her work at the Building Movement Project, Thipa creates narratives, provides trainings, and facilitates networks around social change and solidarity practice. Her political and community homes include Asian American, South Asian, Muslim, and Arab spaces, where she spent 15 years responding to the backlash of the September 11 attacks. Deepa served as Executive Director of South Asian Americans Leading Together, also known as SALT, for a decade and has also held positions at Race Forward, the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division, the Asian Pacific American Legal Resource Center, and the Asian American Justice Center. Her first book, We Too Sing America, South Asian, Arab, Muslim, and Sikh immigrants shape our multiracial future, received a 2016 American Book Award. In 2019, Deepa received an honorary doctoral degree from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. An immigrant who moved to Kentucky from Kerala, India, when she was 12, Deepa graduated from the University of Notre Dame Law School and Vanderbilt University. As we engage in this conversation and learn from Deepa's life journey and wisdom, I am especially excited to celebrate the launch of her second book, which I have right here with me, Social Change Now, a guide for reflection and connection. So we'll, we'll definitely get to a great conversation. So I'm really excited about our conversation ahead. But let's go ahead and get started. So Deepa, I'm so excited. Like this is like a dream come true to be with you in community. I'm so glad for uh, to join you um, in community on our podcast today in Student Affairs Now. So welcome to the podcast. Um, But before we begin, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about you and your current role?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I'm so glad to be here, Mantha. I was so happy when you reached out. I feel like, um, you know, especially both of us being South Asian women, um, it's so important to support and encourage one another. And you've always done that. So I appreciate you. Um, And it's great to, you know, be um, talking to folks and talking to you about issues that are affecting young people, um, and, um, educators around the country. Um, so a little, my point of entry, I guess, into this conversation is, um, that I am someone who's pretty steeped in the nonprofit sector and in social movement spaces. And so I, um, come into this conversation with the experiences of, um, someone who's worked in, um, Uh, both local and national nonprofits and also in coalitions and networks, oftentimes during times of crisis. Um, So you mentioned the the post September 11th backlash, and so a lot of my work and what I have learned really stems from um, uh, understanding and assisting community members who faced hate violence Racial and religious profiling and surveillance over those, mm-hmm. um, you know, the decade and a half after 9 11. Um, and some of that those experiences are documented in a book that I wrote, which um, really was rooted in this sense that our young people had such a sanitized understanding of what happened in mm-hmm. the wake of 9-11 yeah. and often an incomplete understanding. And so Absolutely. a lot of that book is related to, um, to to kind of expanding the narrative that we usually tell. And so um, I come into the space, you know, as someone who's done frontline response work, um, storytelling work, and also really clear about a lot of the privileges that I hold is um, someone um, who is um, who has caste privilege, who has yes. um, education privilege, and recognizing that um, it's important to understand how those privileges can play a role in, um, in, in, in sort of the way that we lead or the way that we connect with others as well. Um, so I'll leave it there, but looking forward yeah. to kind of taking a deeper dive.
1: Well, I, I love um, you taking us through the arc, um, particularly in, uh, over the last you know, 15, 20 years about h- how that journey unfolded for you. Um, tell me about what sparked even before that, like how did, you know, what gave you clarity that this was the journey that you were going to go on?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um you know, I think some of it is is rooted. And I think this is the case for so many immigrants um, rooted in the experiences that my family had when we moved to Kentucky mm-hmm. from Kerala, mm-hmm. India. And yeah. It was in the mid 80s. And, you know, at that time um, in Kentucky, particularly yeah. race was sort of really just looked at as a black or white paradigm was a binary. And so for for me, you know, I had really no sense of. Uh, my racial identity. I had no sense of understanding, you know, where I fit. Um, no. But it, what was really clear to me is that I was an outsider, and I didn't mm-hmm. belong. And, right. you know, I think we experience that in so many ways, like wh- whether it was related to language access, or accent discrimination, or, you know, bullying and mm-hmm. school. Um, and so I think I've always kind of carried this sense of displacement and understanding what it means to be on the outside. And then recognizing that um, I wanted to do something to open up spaces where people, regardless of their background, um, were able to feel like they belonged. And so I think yeah. for me, I've been on this quest of belonging for quite some time. And mm-hmm. I have not felt a cle- clearer sense of belonging than I do when I'm um, in spaces where people are really focused on creating change in their communities, but that's where I feel connected. And so, um, it it wasn't like a direct path, um, but it was a path that I was pretty clear about in my mid twenties by my mid twenties. Mm -hmm. And so I've not looked back since then and feel like this is really like my purpose and sort of, uh, the way in which I want to be in the world.
1: I think it's really inspiring because I hear um, an acknowledgement of past experiences, right, that obviously maybe inform um, whether it's reacting to or healing of, you know, journeys that we may have been on, but that that it's an unfolding journey. Um, I like that you said it wasn't direct. I think sometimes we think that we have to have absolute clarity in how we're going to do social change. We have to have absolute clarity. We have to know everything all the time, right? This this kind of notion of if I don't do it perfectly, then that I'm going to mess it up, um, and so I think um, honestly, that's why I was so excited about your social change ecosystem framework because, um, you know, also so as someone having done this work, um, you know, as a career, there was there was something about your framework, well, a lot about your framework that gave me space to breathe and say, this is a way that all of us can find. Mm -hmm. it in our heart and a methodology, even in our uncomfortable spaces to find a way to enter social change. So I'll stop talking, but I would love to hear um, what inspired the concept of the social change ecosystem framework.
0: Yeah, no, I really appreciate you reflecting that back. Um, And I'll talk a little, I'll go back to Mm -hmm. kind of what you said as I, as I talk about the framework. So um, this framework is, you know, honestly, the result of feeling, like I didn't know where I belonged. And wow. it comes from that space. so i the the way that um it even emerged for me was that I had left um salt, where I had been an executive director for ten years, and been really steeped in like the South Asian community uh, spaces and um really felt like I didn't know where I fit. And mm-hmm. it was also the time period when, um you know, the last administration was, Um, was really putting out a lot of policies that were harming Mm -hmm. immigrant communities, communities of color and Muslims and the like. And Mm -hmm. so I felt this real sense of outrage almost every single day. And I also felt a real sense of overwhelm because I was not, I didn't know sort of how to plug in. And I basically looked back at like where, you know, at different spaces I've been part of. And I realized that folks, and organizations usually tend to show up in different roles um, that when they're connected and when they're part of sort of a bigger strategy can really create change. And so that was really the impetus for it. Um, You know, this framework is not, I think the way that that people are relating to it is is really based on their personal experience, obviously, or their organizational vantage point. But, you know, it's also something that is in response is in conversation with so many different styles of leadership and books and frameworks that have been written, um, you know, that that it builds on all of that. So I also, you know, really recognize that it's in a much bigger context. Um, but one of the things that I think can be helpful about this framework, and it goes back to what you said, is that I think it allows us, you said something like you said, it allowed me to breathe. And I think that um, what the framework can often do is help us recognize that we don't have to carry Mm -hmm. or play all of these roles. And also that we don't have to be so um, closely wedded to like one or two, just because we've done it a lot, right? And so even in Mm -hmm. my experience, I had always shown up as a frontline responder, but I recognized that it was taking a toll on me physically Mm -hmm. and emotionally, Yes. Yet I didn't want to leave any, I didn't want to leave social change work or movement Mm -hmm. spaces or community because that's where I belong. And so thinking about how I could perhaps be a guide and, um, mentor other frontline responders, right. is a way for me to still stay connected and to still, um, feel like I have something valuable to offer and not have to completely leave um, you know, the community and the ecosystems that I care about. So I think it offers an opportunity to kind of flex different skill sets, learn different skills and be in connection with others as well.
1: That's beautiful. Um, and I know you're you're referencing um component parts of your framework, you know, as you as you kind of reference guide or storyteller, frontline responder. Um, can you um share a little bit more about the components of the framework and how you think it can be useful for us as educators?
0: Yeah. Um, so to learn more, I would say you could check out socialchangemap.com where you could um, kind of see the framework visually and and learn more about it. But basically it has three elements to it. Um, It offers an opportunity for us to think about what our shared values are. And mm-hmm. so for educators, um, social justice educators in particular even, um, it's an opportunity to think about, you know, what is it that um, we're trying to convey, what is important to us. You know, maybe it's like complete histories or more access points, inclusion, right, whatever the the shared values are. Um, The second component of the framework is to think about the roles that we can Mm -hmm. show up as in terms of either educators, or if you're working with young people, right, what what they Mm -hmm. could show up as. And there are are 10 roles that we're invited to consider. They range from storyteller, to visionary, to builder, to experimenter, to healer, to caregiver, and so on Mm -hmm. and so forth. And um, each of those roles has different characteristics. And um, also room to improve. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the third aspect of this framework is that it's premised on this idea that we are all connected, that we mm-hmm. do better when we work in solidarity rather than silos, you know, really, I think lifts up and amplifies what we um often hear from indigenous communities that were kindred, that were relatives, right? And so um, recognizing that even in social change work, Mm -hmm. that it's important to have those deeper connections, whether it's between people or between organizations as well. Um, Not to say that there isn't conflict and that there isn't disagreement, but um, it's, it's an opportunity to lean into that if it's generative. Um, so how so how can educators use it? I think in a couple of different ways. One, it can be used um, as a teaching tool mm-hmm. with young people who care about social change and are looking for entry points um, to help them think through what are the roles that they're naturally aligning with and who is part of their broader ecosystem. A second way is um, to use it um, as a mapping tool for, you know, the department that you work in, perhaps. So, um, you know, if there are, say, DEI task forces on campus, or if there's uh, an, an initiative around inclusion, or if there are multicultural centers in conversation with each other, it's an opportunity to think about. What is our role vis-a-vis the broader university or the broader institutional ecosystem? Are we disruptors? And many are, right? And how do we disrupt in a way that um, can push the institution to take some bolder steps, for example? So those are just a couple of ways in which it could be utilized.
1: I want to you just had <laughs> sparked um, a whole series of probably what could be another podcast conversation for me and what you just said. So I, um, I hadn't played with the idea of organizations with their unique roles, either separate organizations or um, organizational entities, if we're talking higher education within a university context. But um, so I, I pulled up, you know, your, the, the social change ecosystem map, you know, just, just for my own context. And, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, yeah, I mean, if, uh, you know, the, sometimes I think offices think that, you know, they have to be all things to all people. So, um, if you're trying to engage in social change and you're the student conduct office, you know, or, or you're the fraternity and sorority life office. And I know that may seem conf- controversial to say, you know, people want to, write off certain organizations, but everybody has an opportunity to enter in a different way. I think sometimes, particularly me and my dominant identities, uh, I appreciate you naming yours, um, in my dominant identities, I feel like I have to enter full force in the same ways that members of those communities enter as well, when maybe I need to step back, reflect, and see um, with humility, maybe where my point of entry might be different. But, you know, I, I think uh, representatives of offices, like, mm-hmm. you know, an office could say, wow, we're student activities, we might enter in the space of storytelling, because maybe our storytelling of different communities is incomplete, rather, right. you know, than than maybe them being a frontline respond, maybe a frontline right. responder, maybe a counseling center or multicultural affairs office is better equipped and trained mm-hmm. to be a more effective for frontline responder. And and so together, if we all recognize our roles, then then we are uh you, you said something that was powerful. Mm-hmm. We could be part of a bigger strategy for social change. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on that? Like
0: no, you 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 totally, totally got it, Monta, of course, you described it so well. Um the framework is multidimensional. Um, mm-hmm. individuals can use it, but so can organizations and so can bigger networks and coalitions and task forces and even movements. And so exactly what you said you know i have worked with um institutions of higher education Uh who will say you know we've got this kind of dei uh pledge and commitment yes we have a lot of different entities in our institution that are part of this task force right and they all kind of have different things that they do and so Mm -hmm. in that context this framework could be used to one really get clear on what the shared values are when we say mm-hmm. Dei because those are just words that are buzzwords, yes. you know, so like yes. how do we define what what does it mean to get there, right? Um, mm-hmm. what's our boldest vision of what Dei looks like on our campus and practice? Um, uh-huh. w- how will the campus change when we get there? So that that is like a values conversation. Um, a second thing that that could happen is that all of those entities that are part of this bigger, You know, push for DEI could, like you said, map themselves on the framework. And so it's possible to understand that there might be some people who play the role of a visionary to say, this is, this is our North star. This is where we want to be in five years, but to get there, you know, we often need builders and experimenters who can actually implement that vision. So who, who will play those roles? Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And how are they going to be in contact with the visionaries um, uh, and, and have that feedback loop? Um, Mm -hmm. Who are the healers in the space? Because a lot of, institutions of higher learning, you know, um, have been built on, um, a capitalist or extractive model, um, Mm -hmm. are often, you know, basically taking over neighborhoods and gentrifying cities. Right. And so, um, we have to recognize that there has to be a healing process. You can't talk about like getting to DEI if you haven't recognized like past harm. And so, Mm -hmm. Are the healers that we're able to kind of bring into this conversation who can make those things more clear and transparent and then lead us through like a process of acknowledgement and um, accountability or whatever the case is? So um, that's that's how um, a task force on DEI on a campus could Mm -hmm. make sure that it's like identifying its roles and its shared values and then implementing action steps.
1: I really um I value that. You know, I've often thought about <laughs> you know, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up and so it's always toggled between student affairs and chief diversity officer. Um and in this uh you know, or chief diversity equity inclusion belonging, you know, the the range of um DEI offices. I really I hadn't, hadn't thought about this either, but your idea of kind of using and leveraging this model as a tool to calibrate values before you go into a planning or a task force operations, because oftentimes when we do that, it's we're often reacting to, right? There's a task force that's convened because some reactive incident happened on campus. It usually isn't what creation are we in? It's what are we reacting to? And now then we, you know, sometimes say, okay, now we need to create. But if we were truly centering it around, you know, what is the world we want to create for the future, this model really allows us to center um, and not, I should say, uh, calibrate a set of values, aspirational values, and get clear about the methodologies we want to engage as we're going on that journey. Mm-hmm. So, so it organizes us uh, in a thoughtful way, which I appreciate.
0: Yeah. And I think it's not surprising. We do this in the nonprofit sector movement Uh spaces all the time, right? We assume that we all have the same understanding of what certain concepts mean. We assume that we all have the same political analysis. Um, And it's not the case. And that's not Mm -hmm. uh, something to feel badly about. It's just we're all on a different trajectory of learning and unlearning. And so it and and we don't often take the time to pause. And I definitely, you know, this is mm-hmm. a challenge for me too, because I tend to be the frontline responder, you know, who's mm-hmm. like, there's a crisis, we need to act, let's worry about everything else later, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think this allows us an opportunity at least to have an initial conversation to say, why are we coming together? What mm-hmm. is it that, you know, we believe in and want to achieve? And even if we don't agree, on mm-hmm. everything, whether it's values or political analysis, um, what is it that we have enough shared agreement around that we can utilize to iterate and experiment? and then let's also just commit to coming back, right? So like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, three months yes. later, when the crisis perhaps is abated, we will come back and and really deepen this conversation that we started,
1: mm-hmm. uh, well, you you uh, mentioned something earlier. So connecting that to your current thought around, you know, h- how do we kind of shift our lenses based on um, some of the the, the different um, identities we might share, right? So if I'm a frontline responder, and I need to take a step back, um, in what ways do, right, the healers activate in a different way, or the storytellers or guides like, like the, that we can tag in and tag out in, in some ways, yeah. um, and which then allows us collectively to stay in it. Right. Um, I, I'm looking back and I, I have to ask you the question, uh, you know, when I began doing this work early on in my career, I felt like uh, I need to take responsibility for the fact that I, I I really led with like this litmus test model. Like if you if you don't, you know, do X, Y and Z things, then you're not X, Y, Z effective enough and therefore just leave. You know? and, and I'm not very proud of that, but I need to take ownership of that um, in my very early kind of journey. And I think what you offer for me is a way to heal through that, um, mm-hmm. and and to say, okay, like we need to step in. We need when we need to do our own uh, well, whatever. It may not be healing, but well being efforts that you know we have the opportunity to step in and step out. I don't think that I ever have felt that way, um, you know, in in my prior mm-hmm. work. And I feel like your model gives me permission. To say stepping away doesn't mean you're stepping out; it means you can engage differently. Any th- I mean, yeah, burnout so well is well said. By the way, yeah. oh, I love I
0: loved how mm-hmm. you framed it. Stepping away is not stepping out. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think that you know, obviously, um, for those of us who've been doing work in social movements and communities for quite some time Um, we know that context is everything right and things
1: change
0: all the time and things change in our lives things change in our communities things change Mm -hmm. politically and so holding on to one role for like 20 30 years I think is not only stagnant (laughs) You know, for the person, yeah. but it doesn't really generate new ideas into our communities or our institutions or our sectors. And so it's really important, I think, to recognize uh, whether it's burnout or whether it's sort of like, okay, we've been doing the same thing over and over again and it's not really working, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's ineffectiveness or whether it's redundancies. Um, I think it's important to actually take stock of some of that. And oftentimes the next step is, well, I have to like leave and like, it's not, you know, or we have to just completely change everything and overhaul everything. No, I think there Mm -hmm. are incremental ways to kind of address those realities by by, switching roles or stepping away or, mm-hmm. um, thinking of a different strategy for the organization or the institution to play. Right. Um, mm-hmm. otherwise I think we're kind of, we, we get really stuck and stagnant and I don't think that that's helpful, especially when we're trying to address really big issues and, you know, create pathways for people mm-hmm. and, and build power.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So in my profession, um, positionally, I mean, I think many of us do, sit in spaces and it c- continues to increase right as as we think about how our life continues to get uh, more and more complex we, we we're we seeing a lot of burnout in in my mm. profession across the board what reflections might you offer to those of us um who are working through uh burnout or trying not to burn out like what coaching mm-hmm. would you offer us as you think about this
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that this is such a live question. I'm not, (laughs) uh, I'm not an expert on it, you know, at all. Um, uh, I would also recommend folks listening to, um, or or reading books by, uh, Laura Vander Lipsky on trauma stewardship. Um, Mm -hmm. she's got the trauma stewardship Institute and she's got, um, Mm -hmm. a podcast as well. Um, because I think she offers and her guests offer really, uh, Lots of good tips on this topic, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know, I think it's really important, and and the book that I just wrote Mm -hmm. has like a section at the end on sustainability and well-being. I think that um, it's really important to recognize, you know, one when our cup is emptying, and a lot of that sort of personal Mm -hmm. self-awareness is so important, and then also recognizing what are the factors that tend to deplete our cup or energy, you know, is it, um, because of institutional values being misaligned with what we believe, because that can Mm -hmm. lead to burnout, emotional burnout. Mm -hmm. Is it because we are playing too many roles on that framework and we need to actually take some action ourselves? Um, is it because we don't have a strong enough ecosystem to support us and what can Mm -hmm. we do to build that? So I think that kind of, you know, understanding of what is it that, what are the cues? And I think we all know them, you mm-hmm. know, we know them for yeah, ourselves, Yeah, right? absolutely. We're yeah. feeling like that tug. Um, so like getting more clear about that, more uh, rigorous about recognizing those cues. And then secondly, I think taking some action steps um, related to them so that we're not like, okay, like there's nothing and I'm just going to have mm-hmm. to, right? So um And I think some of it is on us, some of it is on, but I think also some of it's on our ecosystems, right? Mm -hmm. And so what are sort of like institutional policies around taking care of staff well-being? What Mm -hmm. are, um, you know, what are sort of... um, the, the non-profit, I I know the nonprofit profit sector better, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I've definitely seen over the last few years, particularly with the pandemic, you know, that there's more of a focus on um, healing and well-being, so whether it's trauma-informed supervision, mm-hmm. or whether it's sabbaticals or coaches being offered right or mental health stipends um for folks in the nonprofit sector mm-hmm. these are all institutional policies that can be put into place and then i think each of us bears an onus in recognizing um how it is that we're going to uh build out some strategies to um to 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 care for our well-being as well
1: mm-hmm. so as you kind of reflect on the arc of your journey um you know, your, your book came out this year, uh, just last month. How, um, so even though it came out last month, obviously it's been an arc of a long time coming, you know, to the creation um, and and delivery of of, um, this book. Do you, like, how do you, um, do you engage in social change work differently today than you did when you first started?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think I would say that my work has evolved quite a bit. And a lot of that is the recognition of mm. wellbeing practices to be uh-huh. honest, oh, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, so I was, as I mentioned many times like a frontline responder yes. for most of my journey. Um, so when there were crises in community to think about, well, what is a campaign? What is a response? What is the uh-huh. policy, right? How do we bring people together to talk about it? Um, and I spent a lot, most of my time doing that. And I think I recognized, um, uh, around, uh, probably like at the 10, eight to 10 year mark, the eight year mark of doing that, that I was, um, kind of numb, you know, I mm. wasn't like responding with the same level of energy or the same level of, I think, um, rigor, um, mm. or ideas, that I had before. And it was because I was feeling exhausted and fatigued. And so that is one of the reasons that, you know, I realized it was time for me to kind of move away from the organizational work I was doing um, and create room for, for new leadership and new ideas, but also that I needed to kind of shift my own role so I could stay in the space without feeling like I was just putting in like 10% Ten percent, or calling it in, you know, yes, and yeah. shifting my role to storyteller, mm-hmm. which is why the book I wrote the book, <laughs> um, shifting my role to um, the the first book I wrote, you know, was mm-hmm. was really around that idea of being a storyteller, um, or to be a guide to other frontline responders, um, or to even being an experimenter, which is what I feel like I've been doing more recently with looking at different you know resources that might right. be helpful for people and different tools um has really energized me yes and um kept me connected to the work that i care about but also feel like i really can bring everything that i have to it
1: oh, thank you so much um it's 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 really heartwarming i think you know i think again i just keep reiterating i think sometimes those of us that enter social change work think that we have to operate at a certain force all the time, right? And just the continual reminder of, you know, our enoughness in the in the moment is enough, right? right? And and so what does that mean to kind of hold sacred, like that we are the tool by which we're doing the work? And if you think of if you think of holding something sacred, you treat it differently than oh, it's a check the box thing. So right. if I'm if I'm holding myself sacred, then I'm gonna treat myself differently mm-hmm. to stay in this for the long haul. Um, I want to go back to something um, you've you've used this phrase a couple of times. This like a, a point of entry into the work, um, and um, there are pieces. And you know, uh, we don't know each other very well. I'm just a I'm a big fan, and so I, you know. But there are some resonances in our story. Um, when you talked about growing up, you know, kind of in a black-white paradigm. Uh, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and it is not that now. But when I was right. growing up, you know, we grew up in an all-black neighborhood. And, and it was very much a, a black and white paradigm. And so I think my messaging and just how I understood myself mm-hmm. in the context of a black white paradigm, uh, hearing you talk about your experience helps me contextualize my own around where do I enter the race conversation, right? So as I grappled in my profession, where do I enter? Or there isn't a place for me to enter because I might be taking up too much space um, in in a, in a, you know, particularly in in our geography, rooted very much, um, right in in uh, anti blackness, right? And and so, how do I enter that conversation without feeling like I'm taking up space with my story? Um, now I recognize, of course, it's an interconnected mm-hmm. story. So I guess my question is twofold: for those of us that may be socialized to think that we don't have a space in the story, mm-hmm. um, or um, or and. Um, The other space where I find parallel is around my dominant identity. So the spaces where I hold privilege and power. Mm -hmm. How can I really embrace this framework to tap into the courage? (laughs) I need to do this work from my privileged identities. Uh, I think it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's easier, but I see a through line In the inner, in the identities that I share um, that may have experienced depression, right? Systemically, Mm -hmm. but as a dominant identity person. So as somebody with caste privilege, as somebody uh, with citizenship, as somebody Mm -hmm. with education and able-bodied heterosexism, many of those other, I have more privileged identities than not. How can I really um, courageously use this framework?
0: (laughs) Mm-hmm. I love that question. Man- Mantha, and it's something I grapple with myself all mm-hmm. the time. Um, I think a couple of things are coming up for me. You know, I think when we talk about points of entry, mm-hmm. it can co- sort of be couched in a couple of different ways. And you already mentioned them. Um, I think one is identity. Um, mm-hmm. Two is privilege and positionality. Mm-hmm. And third is experience. Um, I I often think about those three different buckets when I think about points of entry of my own points of entry. And Mm -hmm. often it feels in some spaces, right, that identity trumps everything and Mm -hmm. or privilege trumps everything. And I think we have to be careful about that because when we do that, we sort of say, well, if you hold these sorts of identities you're in, if you hold those sorts of privileges, you are out. And I think that 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 is, um, I don't think that that's a productive or effective way of doing social change or doing equity work and inclusion Mm -hmm. work, right? Because Mm -hmm. it goes against the values of inclusion if you prioritize certain identities or certain privileges or whatever the case. Um, Mm -hmm. But how do we, but I think that's important. And I think we also have Mm -hmm. to really balance that with recognizing that, um, and we talk about this in our solidarity work all the time, that we have to really follow the lead of people who are most directly affected by a particular issue or by a context, because they have experiences we don't, and they also have solutions that we don't, right? If we're not Mm -hmm. part of that directly affected community in that context. Mm so I think it's a balance of yeah. the points of entry and our uh, orientation towards mm-hmm. you know, making sure that we are listening and lifting up people who are most directly affected and doing all of that with a level of humility yeah. and also so a level of recognizing that sometimes we are going to make mistakes mm-hmm. and that there is some grace and possibility in redemption and in learning and unlearning. I think all of that has to be part of the yeah. these containers that we create. Right. Um, but I do feel like this framework, I love what you said, like a courageous way to use the framework. It is a, a way to say, you know, I'm going to come in, I come into this space, like my point of entry into the space mm-hmm. is um, as, you know, a storyteller. And I recognize, you know, the second, the second part of that is like, mm-hmm. I recognize that I hold certain privileges in playing that role. Yeah and the way this is how i do it right this is the way that i do it um mm-hmm. and so i think that we're always you know even with the the first book i wrote which is a book of story yeah. you know it's all yeah. based on a lot of stories right um i write about people who have experienced hate violence or profiling and I don't come from all of those communities, nor have I experienced right. all of those things, right? right? But how do we tell those stories with humility? How do we tell them so that people who are writing about feel like they're actually participating rather than being the subjects of a story? Correct. Um, yeah. What are the way, you know, so so these are some of the things I think about um, when, when I examine like my own privileges as well as my points of entry um but yeah. i do feel like there is a role in space for everyone and i think mm-hmm. we need everyone right now and mm-hmm. if we play sort of purity politics against each other and yes. and um you know do this kind of you're in but you're out um mm-hmm. i don't actually think that's aligned with values of inclusion nor is it going to help us win in the you know some yeah. of these fights that we're trying to fight
1: yeah um i i really appreciate that um you, you know this like you you have a there's a like actually the beginning section right um in your book you say i'm I'm holding it up for folks in the visual the time is now right and i told you i was going to do this so I, <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna read from a, i mean there's so much like i feel like every line um could be a story unfolded unto itself and so i've just mm-hmm. i've appreciated. Um, reading this book a couple of times, like be engaging it different ways in different points Mm. in time. But I'm going to read from here. And you know, this is begins the section of that you call the time on the clock of the world is right now. Um, And because it goes into your, you know, position that we need all of us as many of us in engaging in this work in any way that we can. And you talk about, you know, all of these overlapping the crises, right? All of these overlapping crises stem from similar root causes. Anti-Blake Anti-black racism, imperialism and colonialism, extractive capitalist models, and histories of oppressive treatments towards communities. Um, and so, when I when I when I think about that sentence, you know, and when when we were reflecting earlier, I was like, oh, that's heavy. It is heavy. Um, and I also feel like that's the reason. Like that underscores everything that you just talked about. Like mm. this is the why. This is why we need to stay in. How how would you encourage us to see? the interconnections between these concepts, right? I I didn't understand the interconnections among Mm -hmm. these concepts earlier on in my career. How might somebody who's entering in, like, how would you encourage us to do that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that whole idea of the time on the clock is now is Mm -hmm. reflecting um, uh, something that Grace Lee Boggs, who's an an Asian American Mm -hmm. scholar and activist in Detroit would always ask when she would bring community together, what time is it on the clock of the world she would ask Mm -hmm. and so the response that i give to that is like the time is now right like Uh the time is um it's ripe um so in terms of recognizing those root causes i think we all recognize um that the the inequities in our country and in our world are created by certain root causes right and i've Mm -hmm. named some of them there there Mm -hmm. are many others Mm -hmm. but you know everything from um, yeah, misogyny to <laughs> racism to indigenous um invisibility, you know, there are so many different root causes, but your question is so on point. how are they connected, and I think that's a process of of learning um mm-hmm. in many ways, I honestly think that that's why I'm excited to be like living and working in this moment doing social yes. change work because mm-hmm. i do think that those interconnections are more, more visible than ever i mean even mm-hmm. if we look at for example the pandemic we can see
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know we can see how um black and latinx communities experienced higher levels of illness and death and why is that we can trace that to root causes yes, of underinvestment absolutely. in those communities right Um, Mm -hmm. We can sort of look at how public institutions um, around health have been failing. And we can, Mm -hmm. again, like look at how um, an extractive model of health is at the root of some of that. Right. So I think that those when we look at some of these issues, we can see these different root causes interplaying and being interconnected. And the way that we respond to that is ourselves being Mm -hmm. organized in an interconnected manner rather than looking at everything in silos. And I wish sometimes, I mean, I hope, even as we are Mm -hmm. thinking about this response to the pandemic, you know, I often wonder, you know, is the healthcare sector in conversation with, you know, right, other sectors or- Uh And vice versa, because if we don't do more of that, if we don't Mm -hmm. build more connected and diverse ecosystems to deal with these issues, we're, I think, just constantly going to be in the cycle of putting band-aids on things and not really getting to the root causes.
1: Mm -hmm. And so
0: part of I think the challenge for the time is now is not Mm -hmm. to just respond in a band-aid way, but to actually identify the root causes and then figure out how we respond to them, not just as one person or one organization or one sector, but as an interconnected ecosystem that cares about, you know, eliminating those root causes and cares about all of the communities that live in a particular area. I think that's the that's the hard work that's that's ahead of us.
1: Uh, uh, I'm chuckling a little bit because not, not, this is a very serious and important conversation. And I I love the wisdom that you bring to the space. Um, This is my parents wanted me to be a medical doctor. So this is the one time I'm going (laughs) to offer like a faux scientific (laughs) reflection on what
0: you said.
1: And I I think about, you know, I think about the human body. Right. And I think about, you know, we, we talk about circulatory, right, Like that's what we learned in school. Circulatory, you know, we have all the different systems in the, in the body. And yet without the connective tissue, none of, none of the stuff works. And I think I, you know, as I'm now understanding even more in our conversation, your model, I feel is a calling, um, for all of us to rebuild and nurture the connective tissue so that the rest of the systems actually are able to be as effective as they can be. Yeah. Um, now there's an amazing metaphor.
0: (laughs) Oh, I don't that's know if it's true or metaphor, not. Because but... it is true, because yeah, our body yeah. is an ecosystem too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just as like the you know, like yeah. the pond <laughs> down the street yeah. is an ecosystem, the coral reef, mm-hmm. they're all mm-hmm. ecosystems. And and a lot of people have been talking and writing, like Adrian Marie Brown and others, about yes. sort of what mm-hmm. we learn from nature and how mm-hmm. that uh, understanding, you know, how how different species or even our bodies work. Um, that we can learn so much about mm-hmm. how the interconnection and the interplay should be when we're organizing ourselves into different institutions and networks. So there's mm-hmm. a lot there, and I I absolutely agree. Um, that's why the word ecosystem is mentioned mm-hmm. so much in my book. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I think I, I love the intentional use of the term ecosystem. I mean, uh, you know, you the resonance around we are interconnected and and we are stronger. You know we can advocate for a greater level of change when we kind of hold on to one another. Um, mm-hmm. it just it, it really um it spoke to me. I feel like I, I wish I'd had this tool when I was younger. Um, and I'm grateful to have it now, right? So, so there isn't a, a timeline on this that you know, as as we've no, kind of about. The, time now, right? the time is now, right? The
0: time is now, yeah. And I think you know, a lot I, I, I really want to encourage and invite folks to look at this as. Um, an individual tool that can help us build our awareness, but to to take it a step further, right? It's intended Uh to increase our level of self-awareness to a particular end. And that end is that we take all that knowledge and we actually then think about how we're showing up in a broader ecosystem to bring about institutional change and policy change and structural change. And if we so, it's really kind yes. of an overarching goal. Um, and I think when people and organizations when people and organizations are able to do that, mm-hmm. I do feel like there are some aha revelations and even absolutely. some changes in programming, fundraising, um, talking about the organization, yeah. right that can happen
1: absolutely. Um, and I hear you talking about organizations, right and and infrastructures. i want to um, I don't think it's stepping back, but I want to reflect on probably my most salient identity. This is a surprise to zero people who know me. Um, and that is that of a uh, parent of mom. Mm. And so, um, so my, my daughter is in high school, just started ninth grade. Um, and my head is spinning. She, she's seen the book in the house and she's, she loved the map. So, you know, the, the book comes Yay. with the the open up map and she's like, Whoa, what is this? <laughs> and I'm like, hold on. Like, I, I haven't processed yet. like how I want to engage this conversation with you. But like as if you if you could offer reflection to me as a parent, like how can I um how might I engage this with my ninth grader?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, in so many different yeah. ways. <laughs> yes. I love it. Um yeah, I have a seventh grader. So <laughs> I and and I also um that the the parent identity is is super <laughs> prominent in my life too. Um I would say a couple of different ways and I've actually like used it with my own son. So it comes from personal experience, but I've also seen others use the map yeah. in ways with their children or as parents with um, young folks. So one is um, it is a teaching tool. So, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that I have done with my son is sort of um, helped him understand the movement for voting rights that um, happened in the South and particularly with the March to Selma and, mm-hmm. um, and we, what we did was we combined the map and some work um, that was done through the Zen education project, yep. um, where we learned about like different folks that were, that were really part of that movement. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I would ask my son to sort of say, well, what role do you think they're playing here? Right. Are they builders? Or are they visionaries? Um, mm-hmm. And we were able to, you know, so he would map out their names on, on the framework. And then there was. And then, you know, kids are like, they come up with their own revelations, right? Very quickly. We don't even just have to like put it in place and they get there. And so he would say things like, well, it looks like everyone did one or two things to make the uh, goal happen, right? Um, Right. So recognizing that it isn't just like one charismatic leader, that it takes like a movement, and it's over time. And Mm -hmm. this is how they were in connection with each other, even if we're not reading that in the history books, right? That they actually Mm -hmm. communicated, and they organized. (laughs) And so Um, So it's a teaching tool to talk about historic, historical events or historical figures in social justice. Um, It can also be utilized, obviously, to think about oneself. And so to, you know, think about, well, what are the, and I think this, I mean, I've seen kindergarten teachers use this framework. Wow. It's great. Yeah. To talk about like in our school system, in our school ecosystem, How do different people play roles? Like, you know, teachers are builders and, you know, these students are um, the ones, you know, who are taking care of um, each other. So they're caregivers, right? So Mm -hmm. there are different ways to even think about how to build those characteristics within ourselves that we're, Mm -hmm. that at a young age, we might even be aligned with. Um, And then as kids get older to think about how they can play those roles in order to um, do their, like. Community change work, or volunteer work, or campus associations and organizations, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. Um, so, I think personal development and growth, personal awareness, history, yes. teaching, all of that.
1: Um, I'm super. I, I, I get. I could talk to you for days. Um, we're coming to the close of our time together, at least for the context of this podcast. Um, I I do have a question for you that I'm going to have you think about, but I have a reflection. Um that I want to share after what you just said, um, so my question for you is uh h- how do you create joy in your life? And so kind of reflect on that um as I offer a reflection on what you just said. My wish and my reflection based on what you just talked about as the teaching tool within um our k through twelve ecosystems is. Oh my gosh! Can Sesame Street pill, please pick up your model and and use that <laughs> um, to to, to um, as a framework by uh, th- a to work idea. with our young let's, people? Let's yes. Manifest that. <laughs> let's, so so on this podcast, I want to manifest that Sesame Street picks up this beautiful <laughs> uh, model to talk with young people and and parents who are watching around ways that we can hold on to one another um, in our ecosystem, but. Um, joy. How I do you love, create joy? I
0: really love that. <laughs> I really do. Um yeah, it's it's interesting that you you talked about joy because I was recently um just sharing with some friends that um for the next year I really want to lean into this this prose poem by Mary Oliver, oh. um, which is like joy is not a made to be a crumb, right? If you yes. like suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate, give into it. And I think Um, I don't, I don't know about you, but oftentimes I feel like I've been conditioned to feel like I'm not worthy of joy. I'm not, um, to accept it or to cultivate it, that it's like something that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, feels like a guilty pleasure almost. Right. Um, and I think that I'm really pledging to myself to kind of shift that orientation, um, and to, to cultivate it and then to share it. Right. Um, so for me, um, joy happens in different ways. It can be, you know, like reading a book with my son Mm -hmm. um, or, you know, watching my child with his grandparents, you know, um, there are lots of ways in which I think joy kind of comes up. But to me, it's about actually recognizing it and naming it as this is joy and then sitting with it, uh, you know, for a little bit of time rather than kind of push it away or apologize for it or feel like, well, to get on to the next thing. Um, mm-hmm. so that's what, um, it's, it's, I'm, I think there that I'm lucky that there are pockets of joy, but I don't know that I actually sit with them enough. So that's really uh-huh. kind of the challenge for myself in the coming year.
1: Oh I'm I'm glad that that's what uh, the the kind of the closing reflection that our our listeners and viewers get to experience. So Deepa thank you thank you so much um for your time and wisdom today. It's really um more than the gift that I thought that you would bring and so I'm just really just ecstatic and and feel so whole in this moment. Um, So thank you for being part of the Student Affairs Now community. Um, I also want to take this moment to thank our sponsors, again, Leadership and Simplicity. We appreciate your support. Um, More specifically, Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in person, for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit leadershape.org backslash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And then Simplicity is the global leader in student services technological platforms with the -the state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to institutions, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including but not limited to career services and development, student conduct and well being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And as always, much love and a huge shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, the producer for the podcast, who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us look and sound good. So friends, if you are listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com and scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your email to our MailChimp list. While you're there, check out our archives. Once again, I'm Mumta Akapati. So much love and gratitude to everyone who is watching and listening. Please make it a beautiful week that honors your soul and spirit. Thank you all so much. Have a beautiful, beautiful day.